Well, let me give you a little background. This practice was brought over to the West from India by a guru called Satchanandaji and in the year that I was born, 1953. In some schools of yoga, it's considered to be the single most important practice you can acquire. And on an esoteric level, I know of at least one guru who was given all instructions in the system, the entire system, when he was in the state that Yoga Nidra is supposed to create in the body. That is to say, um, awareness of what's happening in the body is a maximum. There's a sense when you're fully relaxed that a kind of timelessness of that quality. Um, you'll notice that your own mental chatter has been reduced to a minimum and eventually it actually stops. Not because you tried to stop your thinking, but because a larger space in which you can see thoughts like a fish dancing on the surface of the ocean instead of just being aware of the existence of the fish. Now, it's a, bit, it's a bit mixing my metaphors there a bit, but you get the idea. And in fact, any kind of meditation practice is supposed to lead you to a similar state. Although there is a school of meditation in Japan whose sole purpose is for their members to become rich. And, and so this, and I'm mentioning that as a bit of a joke, but the, 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 the key point here is that your own meditation practice and your own lying relaxation practice uh, will be driven by whatever intention you bring to that practice. And so in the traditional yoga nidra practice, and you can definitely include this in your own practice if you want to, you set a resolution early in the process um, and you repeat that resolution just before you come out of the state at the very end. And in Sanskrit it's called a sankalpa, those of you who want to read up a bit more on that. But the fundamental purpose of this practice, from my perspective, as a teacher teaching in the West, has little to do with any of those things. It has everything to do with trying to create the experience of deep relaxation in the students every time we do the practice. And so because we know, and because I've spoken to many of you here, because we know that most people's experience of their life is that their mind is very busy and that thoughts are coming and going and we get distracted. Anyone who tried to learn how to meditate, well, the first thing they'll tell you is, well, oh, it was a terrible meditation session because my, I was distracted by thoughts the whole time. But that's actually a very good practice because most people are distracted by thoughts the whole time when they're not meditating and they're not aware that they're being distracted by thoughts the whole time. So task number one is actually to be aware of what's happening now, in fact, one of the instructions my friend Patrick gives regularly on retreats is that his students will say, well, there's this happening, there's that happening, and something else is happening, and he'll say, what's happening right now? And if you can bring, if you can narrow your concentration in your practice to what's happening right now, that strengthens your capacity to concentrate, but without putting effort into it. We want that capacity, we want the capacity of concentration, but we don't want there to be the usual accompaniment, typical in the West, of working at it or making something happen. And for me, the short track to experiencing that is to do this practice. Okay, how often to do the practice? 
There's another saying in the yoga world that if you want to make a change in your life, you practice something for a month. But if you're really serious about wanting to make a change in your life, you practice for three lunar cycles, so three months. Three months seems to be a length where if you're able to do the practice consistently every day for three months, you will have changed by the end of the three months. Even if you have no idea what the shape and the feeling of that change is, even with the intention of experiencing deep relaxation, what it will feel like when it actually happens will no doubt be somewhat different to what you think it will be now. So have no thought for the outcome of the practice. Simply do the practice for one month or three months. Now the actual construction of the practice itself, talking to you now as potential teachers of similar systems, there is nothing particularly special about it. Just certain themes have been found to be effective in giving the mind something to do which will lead to the state of relaxation. Now the mind could be given many different things. If I said, okay, in your head try to calculate the value of pi, now, it is possible to do that, but God, what a lot of work, and that will push you in exactly the wrong direction. What we give the mind to do is something like become aware of the meeting points between your body and the floor. So that's one series, and we normally, it's traditional to start with the right heel and so on and so forth. You, you all know that part. Another is to bring awareness to all the movements in the body that we call breathing, because breathing Breathing is not what's actually happening in the body. Well, we call it breathing, but what's actually happening in the body is a series of movements. You can feel this moving and that moving, and if you hold your awareness at the nostrils, you'll become aware that the air actually feels different on the way in to the way out. It's profoundly different. But again, we don't notice these things because we're not directing our attention to it, so there's a whole range of things can be done with breathing as well, including my personal favourite, breathe in, And when the breath is in, pause for a count of one, two, and then let the breath out. Now, when you need to give your students this instruction, when they pause with the breath in, it's not this. It's just, I'm breathing in. I breathe out. I will say, pause with the breath in for a count of one, two, and use as little effort as possible. In fact, no effort. Just pause a natural process which starts here, comes in, and then goes out. We're just pausing it here. So pause with the breath in will be one instruction. And then if you're working on the breath in that particular relaxation practice, you might say on the next cycle after doing something else, pause with the breath out for a count of one, two. Don't use your muscles to do this. Simply, gently interrupt the process. And all the language that you use when you're giving these instructions must be soft, gentle, positive things. Don't say, don't do this, don't do that. Say, do this, do that. Use as little effort as possible. And then at some point I normally say, when I'm talking about some practice where I'm directing your attention to the experience of something physical, I will say, this is just an experience. Don't try too hard. Don't force anything. Be gentle. And so that's a theme I recommend that comes through in your teaching of this practice. Or I might say, we might do this today, we've got enough time. We might say, when I say right hand thumb, 
you have a choice. You can visualize the right hand thumb as an object in the mind, or you can try and feel the right hand thumb without putting any additional suggestions on it than that. And then you ask your students, which is the stronger experience for you? Visualizing or feeling? So when I say right hand thumb, you decide. And so for each of you, the time to consider that is now, when you're not doing the practice. So which is stronger? Ask yourself, visualizing the right hand thumb? Well, for some people, like Dave, for example, my apprentice, my ex-apprentice now, he claimed that he was simply unable to visualize, but he had a very strong kinesthetic sense, and that's where the idea of feeling came from. It's my interaction with him when he was my meditation student. You think you can't visualize. Of course he can visualize. Everyone can visualize. But it was not something that felt natural to him. It's something that he felt he, he couldn't bring to mind instantly and effortlessly, but the feeling in his right-hand thumb strong awareness of that. So that's what you go with. And speaking now most generally about meditation objects, now not, not the lying relaxation, but some of you will want to start a practice. Some people will tell you they cannot feel the movement of the breath in the body. And it's real. So don't, and so many meditation schools do this, they insist that that's the meditation object. No. Anything that your mind goes to can be the meditation object. Anything. We'll talk more about that another time. It's not relevant to this particular practice, but I just thought I'd mention that in case some of you are playing with those things. What is the final, what are the final elements? So we have, in broad terms, we have the working with the breath element, we have the meeting points or the contact points between yourself and the floor element, we have the visualization element, and if you want to add the resolution element, the sankalpa element, do that at the beginning, after you've done the ah, breath out thing, which we always start with, and remind your students that the reason for taking a deep breath in and going, ah, like that, is because relaxation is a habit. It's just another habit. Again, not good, not bad. There's no judgments there, except that it's a useful habit, which that's my perspective, that's my prejudice, if you like, in terms of those things. I have found that it to be an immensely useful habit. And always start the practice with something like the practice begins or the practice starts now or something soft anyway and always end it the same way breathe into the top of your chest lift your arms up to the ceiling and out behind you as you point the toes away from you to lengthen the body and then as you breathe out bring your arms back to your sides repeat that three times when you're done turn over on your side and sit up take your time there's no hurry those are the elements of the last part of the practice are the most useful elements have I missed any out, Luke? You did the breathing thing. Ah, this is, this is very good. Thank you. That's a relatively recent addition. How to experience immediately the, the sensation of letting go of tension in the body. Well, the easiest way for most Westerners is to create the most massive amount of tension in the body that you can by slowly bringing your fingers together like this. And then I say, and at some point you'll start to feel the heat between your fingers or your fingers in the palm. And then a little later on, you'll feel the thumb will come across to the index finger and second finger perhaps. And now your fingers are touching. Feel the heat in your palm. Become aware of that sensation in the hand. Now increase the grip slightly. Now you're making a light fist. Feel where that effort is. Feel what the sensations of that move and that position are. 
and then increase the effort and become aware that now it's not just the hands, it's also the forearm and possibly even your upper arm gets involved as you try to squeeze your hand tighter and tighter. Take a breath in. And as you breathe out, let that effort go and become aware that relaxing is always about not doing or letting go. Feel the sensations in the hand. And then you might say, and now open up the fingers away from each other, engaging another set of muscles. Feel how those muscles are a different set of muscles in the forearm. Spread your fingers as far away from each other as possible. Take another breath in, feel that tension. And then as that breath goes out, let that tension go completely. Like that, something like that. The hand, I think, is the most useful object to do that practice with because for most people, the connection to what's happening in the hand is definitely stronger than what's happening in the foot or the leg. For most people, not for everyone. We're always generalizing here because until we have the experience of living in someone else's body, which sadly we will never have, we have to make some assessments about what these people are feeling. And what I've talked to you about in this brief presentation here is what I've learned from my students over whatever it is, 15 years or so of teaching these things, maybe a bit longer. So do any of you have any questions on that? Oh, I should also add that in the book Overcome Neck and Back Pain, there is a detailed relaxation script. That's where it began so, so long ago. And that one, that particular script is tailored to the needs of people with back problems and neck problems. But the, but the fundamental principle, that is the, to create the experience of deep relaxation in the body, that is still part of that original practice. Background music. No background music. You can play around with binaural sounds if you want to. I, on my early CDs, I, I got a sound generator off the net. The, the phenomenon that we're talking about here is if you play 206 hertz in the right ear and 200 hertz in the left ear, you can actually hear or experience 6 hertz, which is way lower than people can hear. Why is that important? Because the Munro Institute and a number of other research centres in the US, and you can look this up, Munro, M-U-N-R-O-E. Um, what they found was they talk about a phenomenon called entrainment. Now, each of the brain states that Western science has identified has a characteristic summed pulsing frequency. So the alpha state, for example, which is an associative creative mental state, I think is somewhere between... I think it's between 10 and 6 hertz or something like that. The exact numbers are not important. You can look them up. But you, if you decide that you want your recordings to contain that element as well, if you, want, if you know enough about that system to say, OK, we want our students to be hovering somewhere between the alpha and the theta state, which is considered in that work a very desirable state, um, because most people are actually unconscious when they get down to the delta state. But I'll make another comment on that later. Then the entrainment technology, which you can't hear behind the record, any recordings you make, will actually help the brain to get into that state. That's, that's their perspective. Now, the Tibetans, who are masters of meditation, among other things, all of their work is done in the delta state. And I can assure you from personal experience, it's possible to be in the delta state. Just how I identify that the mental state is a delta state, we can talk about that another time, and I can tell you how I know this. It is possible, and in fact, 
um, without trying to preempt this in your own experience. Let me tell you a quick story, and I'll then make the point. I was once on a long retreat in Berkeley in California, and I had the use of a free mat room it was, so a very small room, so maybe four times the size of one of these mats. And I was doing my practice, my yoga nidra practice, as I've outlined it to you, and I was doing all the visualizations and the, and the counting. That's something else I didn't mention. Um, breath counting is the most certain approach and has long antiquity in Zen Buddhism in particular. It is an absolutely bulletproof approach to know whether or not you're staying awake when you are doing your practice. Now, just what we mean by awake, I'll elaborate on, because that's the point of this story. I was doing my practice when I was about halfway through the practice and I suddenly heard someone snoring in this room. And I just turned that idea over in my mind for probably only a few heartbeats and I suddenly realized I was actually hearing myself snore because I was on my own in this room. And that was the first of the practices that I did where the body fell completely asleep but the mind stayed completely awake. And that is something that will happen to all of you doing this practice. And it's desirable because once the body is completely asleep and you can hear it snoring and you're still able to count your breaths, you know you're close to certainly somewhere between theta and delta state of awakeness. Very, very interesting phenomenon. I've had the experience, for example, when I was on another long retreat in New Mexico where... I did the practice for exactly one hour, 60 minutes, and I was breath counting, and I had counted 120 breaths in 60 minutes, which became the st my standard practice. So the idea of counting your breaths is you take a breath in, and on a breath out, you count one. And on the next breath in and the breath out, you increment the count to two. The reason it's such a beautiful practice and why it's such a wonderful practice to do whether meditating or doing lying relaxation is that as soon as you lose your count, you know that your attention has wandered to something else. Very powerful. And you won't remember where you are. You'll think 60? No. I remember, I rem I remember 45, clearly, okay. But the, if you're really ruthless in your own practice, don't go back to 45. Start again at 1. And then when you've had enough of the practice or been doing it for long enough or your butt goes numb or whatever, then bring yourself out of the practice. But breath counting is a phenomenally good practice to do once you've mastered all of these elements, once you can remember the script well enough to do all of the different elements. And the easiest way to do that is we have something like 55 or it might be a bit more now of these recordings on the website. Download them onto your phone and use a different one every day. Now, some of them have actually been recorded while I was presenting on meditation workshops in Malaysia or elsewhere, and there's also interesting effects in the background. There's one that has a, a train going by literally five metres. You've heard that one. That's a Charlottesville one. The train is literally that far behind me when it goes behind me, and you can hear it in the stereo. We had it in York. In York as well, that's right. God, how could I forget? Yeah, a train. So you somehow have to work the sound of the train and the experience of the sounds of the train going through your body and all that kind of thing into the practice, and you can do all that. So anyway, look, that's enough talking. We'll do the practice itself now, but I cannot, I cannot commend this practice to you more highly. It takes no effort. It will have the most radical changes on your expression of yourself or what you think is yourself 
than any practice you can do. And it is a perfect complement for the stretching practice. One thing works the other. And so in time, when you've done this practice for long enough, when I say now, relax your tummy, you'll find, ah, I can let it go completely. But you can't tell yourself to do that. You cannot make the body do anything. You can only create the environment that moves it naturally towards this state. It's so gentle and it's so lovely, this practice in that regard. And so for someone like you, it's probably the most important practice that you'll ever do. I will also make this suggestion that if you have very strong aversion to this practice, it's still worth trying for a month and seeing what happens. Uh, someone I know very well, for example, doesn't find this practice attractive but is drawn strongly to standing meditation practice. And the Buddha spoke of the four postures of meditation and it's no accident. There is standing, sitting, moving, lying. They are all 100% legitimate meditation postures. And yet in the West for some reason, and people who can't sit like this for an hour, force themselves on meditation retreats to sit cross-legged and endure the most amazing pain. What a culture. Seriously. We believe in the more model. If some is good, then more must be better, mustn't it? And so people, at the end of a meditation retreat, the only thing they talk about is how much pain they are experiencing on the retreat. Now, pain is a legitimate meditation object, don't get me wrong, it is. But if you can be comfortable sitting, you have the opportunities to do all sorts of other practices while you're sitting. And the reason why the sitting postures in yoga are regarded so highly and in fact, the Vedas originally had no postures the way we understand Paschimottanasana and all the other postures in modern yoga. There were only four sitting positions. That's all. And the reason is because if you sit for long enough, relax enough, you may just transition yourself beyond your limited sense of who and what you are. That's the point. Mr. Anger's book, Light on Yoga, has the best chapter on meditation that I've ever read. But it's in that first text-heavy section of the book that no one reads. The first 80 or 90 pages, they all pass that and go to Tadasana, pose number one, right. The real yoga. No, it's all the real yoga. Okay, I've, I've spoken enough and I may edit that. We'll see. Any questions before we practice? Do you think that gives you a skeleton of how to construct your own practices? Did you have a question? I would also ask if, uh, if you would ever play background music during a stretch class or a yoga class. Ah, background music. That is the question you asked and I went off on a tangent as always. Um, I recommend not using music in an exercise class or um, a lying meditation because the music that charms you will irritate the shit out of you. In fact, you know, the, those Gamelan orchestra bells, which, which are beautiful, beautiful sound to some people. I know, I know a guy who finds that sound incredibly irritating. If you had the dunga 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 of the gamelans in the background, this guy would be, hmm. Now, you could say he could work with that, and of course that's true. But best not to have any music, I think. And also, too, it's absolutely 
normal for the mind to get caught up in the tune and then to start meditating about music in general. And when was the last time I heard this? That oh, was the last time I was practicing, which I think was last week or was it the week before? And then you're off and running, but you're not meditating anymore. You're not relaxing anymore. So I recommend no music. When you start, how, how long do you start with the sessions and what do you progress to? Oh, that's good. Um, well, I've been making my recent sessions shorter and shorter because what I'm trying to do is to slam that experience of relaxation into the, into the people who are doing the practice as early as possible. Um, for most people, there's no real point, I don't think, in unless you're doing the breath counting practice, which I was talking about before, which is a, I can't stress how powerful it is. I, I know a Roshi, a Zen Roshi, who... His sole practice for 14 years in his daily practice was breath counting, so it's, it's a good practice. Um, it's not a beginner's practice. It can be intermediate and advanced as well. Um, lying on the ground, I think many more than 45 minutes, well, I mean, I can lie be, and be perfectly relaxed for an hour, but there's no, nothing heroic about that. It's just that's what's natural in my body now. But when you're working with your own students, I would not... I would not hold them in that position for any longer than 20 or 25 minutes. And if you think about the structure of your stretch therapy classes, you'll probably only want to do a relatively short practice at the end. Um, to aim for somewhere, I would say, just so this is just a ballpark figure and you can stretch it or compress it, I'd say 12 to 15 minutes is a good length. What do you think, Liv? Anyone else have any thoughts on that who's done this practice? I know Ashwin's done this practice many times, and I know Nick has. And any ideas? I started with your shorter recordings, yep. which are around 18 minutes. Yep. Because um, when I first started a year ago, I just found the 30 minutes was too long. See, there you go. And now I, I definitely feel like I want to be doing 30 to 35 minutes. There you go. I also started with your recordings, and now I've just moved into my own practice, so I go through all these steps. Perfect. So I, I, I needed the recordings for about six months, and then after that... I'll just repeat that for the recording, because we can't pick you up on this. What Ashwin said was that he was, a, he was attracted to the shorter recordings first, um, but now six months or more have gone by. Now he's finding himself attracted to the longer and longer recordings. What's that number one rule in our work? Be nice to yourself. Don't try to force yourself to do anything. And certainly don't involve yourself in the insanity of trying to force yourself to relax. That's crazy stuff. Find how you feel. Start with a short practice and just say to yourself, okay, hell, I'll take the risk. I'll listen to a short practice and see what happens. Do that. And we have some, I think the shortest one is 14 minutes from memory or, or might be 13, something like that. Okay, so we'll do a shortish one now because it's already 10 to 1. Um, and just because of the group and you've been sitting and, and so on, listening to me talk about these things, let us do the elements that I'll use today will be the practice begins, stand in one, sound out, meeting points, just brief meeting points. You don't have to do all the meeting points either. If you're watching your students and you see that they're actually relaxing, relaxing, relaxing quickly, just do one or two or three or four meeting points and then move on to the next element. And then from that element, I'll go to closing the fist. So make sure we've got that recorded in detail, okay?